0: Well, hello there, and welcome to
1: the show, my fellow wrong thinker. I trust you had a great weekend. I've got some stories I'm going to be sharing in the uh, second hour of the program. Actually going to be talking a little bit about uh, a remarkable experience I had this past weekend in which uh, I got to meet for the first time face-to-face my biological mom as well as a couple of my biological siblings. And it, uh, it was a remarkable experience. It's been something that's been many years in the making. But uh, I'm going to share the details coming up in the next hour. So hopefully that's enough of a tease to keep you hanging around. We've got a lot of great stuff to cover this hour on the show. I want to mention that our show is brought to you by, by FireSteel.com. By the way, I did have a friend come over last night and showed him how to use a Firesteel. And uh, it's it's so easy. My only regret is it was late enough in the evening when he came over that I didn't get it filmed. So I'm going to make a video. I'm going to do a little uh, little Facebook video and show you how simple it is to start a fire with a little bit of dryer lint, a little bit of tinder, and my gobspark from firesteel.com. So that's that's upcoming. Also, a shout out to our friends at the uh, Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you for being a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. So on topic today, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, how difficult these last few months have been. And there was an article by John Miltimore that came out over the weekend that uh, really got my attention. The headline is CDC says a quarter of young adults say they contemplated suicide this summer during the pandemic. Now, I don't take that lightly. I think that's uh, that's a pretty serious thing to be to be thinking about. And and I shared the article on Facebook and was surprised to see how many friends who are um, no longer young adults. I mean, they are firmly in, you know, regular old adults uh, territory had commented that they, too, have struggled with thoughts of suicide or with deep depression during this pandemic. And I'm going to confess to you that, uh, yes. I find myself fighting the very same battle. What do you make of that? And look, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, to, boy, this is, you know, this is something we lay this is at the feet of every politician. But I think there is a lesson here in that there's collateral damage that comes along with these lockdowns and all the talk about, well, we've got to save lives. We're going to save lives. I mean, <clears throat> just last week, Joe Biden was talking about 40,000 lives could be saved if we just mandate that everybody wear a mask for the next three months. And so he's specifically talking about 40,000 lives that could be saved, at least he estimates could be saved from the COVID-19 virus. What about the lives of people who are pushed further into despair? This is this is the classic case of, all right, the policy is going to make this happen. But too few policymakers are looking at what else might come as a result of this. And when you talk about um, things that affect your employment, things that cause social isolation, can I tell you, as, as worried as I am about the young people, and we'll talk about this in the article here in a minute, I have a much deeper concern for the elderly in my life. How difficult do you suppose that is for them? They're already isolated in some ways. I think about my mom and I think about, you know, she's she's by herself, has been for a long time. But, you know, she's very she's very afraid of catching, you know, the virus. So she doesn't go out in public. And when people come over, you know, she's nervous to have people come over. I mean, she's in her mid 80s. She's in a prime high risk category. But even if we want to, you know, there there are people urging, don't do it. Don't go see your loved ones, you know talk to them on the phone, do FaceTime or whatever. There's a, there's an element of social isolation that uh, is immensely damaging and and can can cause depression in people. And I don't know I don't know what the answer is. I don't, you know, some people say what are you saying? We just ignore the virus? I'm not suggesting that, but I think uh, maybe we should take a step back and and take a little closer look at who exactly is at greatest risk And what can be done to mitigate their risk without putting everybody else on lockdown? Here's here's how John Miltimore puts it. He says, in economics, we talk a lot about unintended consequences. And it's easy to forget that societies are complex ecosystems. So legislators often pass sweeping changes, hoping to achieve one result and not realizing it will create countless other consequences not intended. Now, he says some of the unintended consequences will be positive, but many of them will not. A case in point can be found in new government statistics that show a surge in suicidal thoughts among young adults during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is from Politico. One in four young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 say they've considered suicide in the past month because of the pandemic. That's according to new CDC data that paints a bleak picture of the nation's mental health during the crisis. Now, the data also flags a surge of anxiety and substance abuse with more than 40% of those surveyed saying they experienced a mental or behavioral health condition connected to the COVID-19 emergency. The CDC study analyzed 5,412 survey residents between June 24th and 30th. It says the toll is falling heaviest on young adults, caregivers, essential workers, and minorities. While 10.7% of respondents overall reported considering suicide in the previous 30 days, 25.5% of those between 18 and 24 reported doing so. Almost 31% of self-reported unpaid caregivers and 22% of essential workers said they've also harbored such thoughts. Hispanic and black respondents similarly were well above the average. Now, the article says the mental health crisis stems from the pandemic, But John Miltimore makes a very solid distinction here, saying it's more accurate to say it stems far more from our collective reaction to the pandemic, not the actual virus. He says locking down economies and ordering healthy people to remain isolated might have succeeded to some degree in slowing the spread of the virus. But it was also a surefire way to make people miserable. Lockdowns result in job loss, anxiety and despair. Scientists have long known the effects of social isolation aren't just harmful, but deadly. In fact, the New York Times explained the deadly consequences of social isolation back in 2016. Quote, a wave of new research suggests social separation is bad for us. Individuals with less social connection have disrupted sleep patterns, altered immune systems, more inflammation, and higher levels of stress hormones. One recent survey found that isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29 percent and stroke by 32 percent. Another analysis that pooled data from 70 studies and 3.4 million people found that socially isolated individuals had a 30 percent higher risk of dying in the next seven years. And that this effect was largest in middle age. It goes on to say that loneliness can accelerate cognitive decline in older adults, and isolated individuals are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with more robust social interactions. And those effects start early. Socially isolated children have significantly poorer health 20 years later, even after controlling for other factors. All told, the article says, loneliness is as important a risk factor for early death as obesity and smoking. End quote. So John Miltimore says, you know, many of the consequences listed here are going to take years to analyze and document. But we've already seen glimpses of more immediate unintended consequences already. Rampant suicide, surging drug overdoses, increases in domestic violence, economic destruction, and many others. And he's he's clear to point out here, none of these consequences were intended when lawmakers passed the sweeping lockdowns. But that doesn't make them less real. Nor do pure intentions of lawmakers uh, absolve them from responsibility. Famed economist Milton Friedman once observed that perhaps the greatest threat to liberty comes from men of good intentions and goodwill who wish to reform us. And John Miltimore says in this case, the well-intentioned seek not to reform us, but to protect us. But as Friedman noted, concentrated power is not rendered harmless by the good intentions of those who create it. And John says, indeed, many of the greatest atrocities in history have been perpetrated by well-meaning people. Above all else, he says, we must judge the lockdowns by their actual results, not what they were designed to do. And this is something that politicians are masters at doing. Well, we intended this to happen, but look at the actual consequences. John Miltimore says, if we fail to judge the lockdowns by the actual results, These troubling CDC statistics are likely to become the norm rather than the exception. I'll have some thoughts on this when we come back in the next segment. Um, If nothing else, if there is a takeaway that at least is is speaking to me from this, it's uh, we would be wise, no matter what our status or standing in life, to really pay attention to the people around us and maybe seek out the ones who may be hurting or struggling and do what we can to strengthen them. Like I said, I'll have some more shots, more thoughts coming up. I'll share those in the next segment.
0: This This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Once again, welcome back. Glad you could join us, my fellow wrong thinker.
1: By the way, if you haven't visited my uh, webpage, the thebryanhideshow.com, you will find a complete list of resources for wrong thinkers. And, you know, these are some of the different news aggregator sites, the different uh, websites, and just some of the different people to whom I turn for regular updates. A lot of them you can subscribe. You can get regular uh, daily emails right there in your inbox and a very wide variety of topics, but most of all, principled principled takes on the world around us, what's going on and what we can do. I want to just come back for a moment to what I talked about in the last segment, which was, you know, the the fact that a quarter of these young people surveyed talked about how they have struggled with thoughts of suicide over the summer as a result of the lockdown, the social isolation, and just trying to adjust to what is uh, a, a very bizarre and in many cases difficult new normal. One of the suggestions that I made is being more aware of the people around us who are struggling. And, you know, I'm going to give you a very unscientific way of going about this. In fact, I can't put any kind of a guarantee. This is going to work. It's going to solve all the problems. But I have found personally that uh, when, when I start my day, and if I start my day with prayer, and I ask God, help me to recognize the people around me who could use encouragement, who could use my help, something about that act of, of committing to, to being willing to help and, and actively seeking help, and, and I believe in asking for, for God's help to, to recognize them, um, it's surprising how often a name will pop into my head or you know, someone will cross my mind and I'll think, I haven't thought of that person for a while. And and uh, more often than not, I'll give them a call and just, just say hi. I mean, I'd look, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not pretending to be one, but I am a friend. And I can be a friend and I can offer encouragement to someone who is struggling. And I I can't tell you why or even how it works. All I know is that uh, it's it's regularly, like surprisingly regularly, people will say, I'm so glad that you reached out or I just... I really needed to have this conversation. So something I'm going to suggest there's, there's my, uh, my gift to you, take it and use it if you'd like to. But uh, I think we could all benefit from, from stepping up and helping one another because there's no doubt about it. But this, this is a tough time. This what we're going through is difficult. And uh, I know I appreciate it when people offer me encouragement because I struggle as well. Look for the opportunity to be that source of light and encouragement for the people around you. I promise you'll find there, there are more people there who would, would benefit from that than, than you would think. And you get better at spotting it. I don't know how, that, maybe it's just one of those skills. The, the more you exercise it, the better it gets. All right, I'm going to shift gears now. I want to talk a little bit about uh, money. I'm concerned because I see what what looks for all the world like a move towards a cashless society. And I'm going to put that in slightly less conspiratorial tones and just say I see a move by government and financial institutions to consolidate their control over our monetary system, over our money and our our personal finances as a result. There's an article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from Jeffrey Gogo. World's best chess player says Bitcoin empowers individuals to be more than just pawns to reckless governments. Now, he's talking about Gary Kasparov. And Gary Kasparov is talking about Bitcoin. Now, you don't have to be an expert on cryptocurrency to understand that uh, this is a decentralized alternative to the centralized fiat currency system that uh, most of us live under. Here in the U.S., that would be, you know, the Federal Reserve System. The article says Bitcoin's finite supply compares favorably to agenda driven printing of money by governments, noted the Avast security ambassador, who also chairs the Human Rights Foundation and the Renewed Democracy Initiative. Speaking to Forbes on the intersection of human rights and new technologies, Gary Kasparov said that cryptocurrencies enable the public to regain control of personal finances at a time when unilateral moves by government and institutions are on the rise. Kasparov said the good thing about Bitcoin is that you know exactly the number, the magic number of 21 million, and we understand the formula behind that. But when you look at the other side, the Fed, for instance, you never know how many trillions of dollars will appear on the market tomorrow that will damage your savings. Now Kasparov said the cryptocurrency's potential for abuse gets overstated, but it's the upside which must be harnessed to empower individuals. Crypto offers means to protect personal finances against inflation and state interference and anything that can offer us the opportunity to take back control or some control of our privacy is always welcome. The chess grand, the chess grandmaster said. He said that's why I think the steady rise in the popularity of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology as a concept is inevitable because it's a response to the shift in power from individuals to states or other institutions that may act on our privacy without our consent, End quote. You can see why I kind of like what he has to say here, right? Money is money, but uh, the privacy issue is a huge one to me. Not because I want to buy things that are naughty and I don't want the government to know about them, but simply because it, be- it can become such a mechanism of control. And there's also the aspect that when you have no financial privacy, every interaction you have, every exchange that you have can and will be taxed. In fact, it will be taxed far more uh, viciously and vigorously than it is right now. Now, as chairperson of the Human Rights Foundation, Kasparov has promoted blockchain and cryptocurrency as a means to empower dissidents around the world. He says, for us, it was important to address every violation of human rights, and we were trying to help these people, most of them under severe attacks by their governments, even if they left their countries. Their financial accounts were hacked, their information was stolen, so we've been providing special training courses. He continued, we've invited famous hackers to help them and to work with them. And we've been using every opportunity to offer them extra protection. And, of course, blockchain and Bitcoin were the very natural choices to incorporate into this strategy. Now, Kasparov also criticized the discriminatory discriminatory treatment of customers from one territory to the other by tech giants and encouraged Internet users to practice digital hygiene to stay safe from governments and other third parties. Boy, but that's the kind of thing you didn't think you'd have to ever consider one day. How can I, uh, you know, practice digital hygiene? And how can I secure my financial, you know, privacy in the face of governments and banks that uh, increasingly are trying to strip every bit of it away? By the way, Paul Rosenberg and his website, freemansperspective.com. Paul has been uh, he has been ahead of this game for such a long time. He is uh, very much into cryptocurrency and very much into encryption in terms of everything that you do online. And I'm sorry to say, I have not followed his advice. But uh, but after reading this from Gary Kasparov, I'm I'm inclined to act uh, sooner than later. Paul uh, Paul Rosenberg has long been saying, if you are not encrypting your online interactions. You are leaving yourself open to some very ugly consequences down the road. Now, that if that sounds conspiratorial to you, I don't know what else to tell you. But can we at least agree that it is a fact, not just some you know wild imagination, that government is vacuuming up every bit of information about us online? I mean, for crying out loud, I live just a few miles away from the great big National Security Agency uh, data collection center in Utah. It's literally visible from most anywhere in the valley where I live. So, yeah, they're gathering up all that information. What are they going to do with it? Well, that's the that's the big question, isn't it? What's the point in gathering all that information if it isn't intended to be used at some point? Personally, I think it's the idea of, well, we can just reconstruct a person's history. Everywhere they've traveled, every text they've sent, every person they've communicated with, every interaction that they've had, if we ever need to. But of course, this flies in the face of the, the Fourth Amendment, you know, your right to privacy, and it flies in the face of the Fifth Amendment and due process unless you, there's actual probable cause that you have been involved with a crime. But hey, those are trifling matters, right? Eh, maybe not.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Hyde, and I am so thankful to have you in my audience. In fact, I want to take just a moment here, and uh, I, I want to recognize uh, one of my uh, longtime listeners. I, uh, when, when I was doing radio in Southern Utah, um, I was on the the big eight ninety KDXU, ten thousand watt flamethrower of a station, just uh, a marvelous platform and and a, a very large, loyal listening audience. I mean, you know, love it or hate it. Even the people who called to complain, Mr. Snarley, I'm looking your direction. They uh, they just loved listening to KDXU. That was the big news talker there. And uh, one of my most recognizable uh, callers was a guy by the name of Rick Christie. Just uh, any time I heard his voice on the phone, I knew exactly who I was talking to. And um, I, I heard from Rick's son over the weekend. Rick, in fact, uh, Rick's son, Tyrell, actually uh, became a, a donor, a supporter of this show, which you can do as well. You go to the go to the uh, subscribe page. There's a place where you can donate. Well, his son contacted me and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to give you some money. And I'm like, well, gee, twist my arm. But in talking with him, I learned that he was Rick's son. And, and more importantly, I sadly learned that Rick had passed away a couple of years ago. And I just I want to give a shout out. Mainly because I I know it sounds cheesy, but there is a relationship that develops with your listeners. And and I, I hope that it's a relationship that you and I are developing here in, in the sense that uh, you come here because you find something that, that gives you encouragement or it provides, you know, some kind of intellectual nourishment or something. That in some way makes your life better, even if maybe it just gives you that little shot of courage to to stand up and say, you know what, I'm not going to knuckle under. I will not surrender another molecule of my freedom or my natural rights, whatever it is. I'm so thankful that you're a part of this audience. And I just I want to give a tribute to to my friend Rick. I'm, I'm sad that he is gone, but grateful for people like him because whenever he did call in when he had something to talk about i felt like i was getting the view of what uh, what the the average guy would be thinking about this rick was no grandstander he was no pontificator he just had a solid take on everything that he weighed in on and i think he he was uh, he was just a great representation of this is this is what most of us would be thinking about a given subject so I honor his memory. And again, Tyrell, thank you, not only for being a a donor and a supporter, but thanks for for bringing me up to speed on your dad and uh, just very grateful for what I do. Now, I'm going to shift gears here, and this may seem like kind of a weird switch, but uh, there's an article, an essay by Jeff Tucker, When Your Intellectual Heroes Let You Down. And this really spoke to me because uh, I, I... Got thinking about it, and it turns out, as a matter of fact, I do have some intellectual heroes. I have people that I look up to, and, and people, you know, when, when I know that there's something going on, there's some controversy or some intrigue, I'm actually quite interested to hear, what would they have to say about this? And not all of them are pundits, not all of them are hosts, you know. Some of them are just people that, uh, that I know through social media, either on Facebook or on Twitter, who just have a solid take and so when something comes up and it's you know controversial, or maybe it's just something I don't have a deep understanding of, I always like to see, well, let's see what this person has to say about it, because I know that they are capable of, of thinking things through. But what do you do when someone lets you down? Jeff Tucker says the lockdown upheaval has affected every aspect of life, including intellectual life. He says people we've never heard of have become some of the most passionate and informative voices against government measures. And Jeff says, I'm glad to meet them and interested in seeing how they grow through this to become influential voices. He says people who otherwise would never have entered public life on this topic felt a moral conviction to stand up and speak. Martin Koldorf and Lord Sumption come to mind. Serious men who could easily have sat this one out, along with tremendous forces of truth like Alex Berenson, Toby Young, Peter Hitchens and Stacey Rudin. In addition to many writers for the American Institute for Economic Research, too many to list who've been just brilliant from the beginning of this crisis. And he says some prominent voices have shown themselves willing to rethink in real time. Matt Ridley, after an initial bout of alarmism, gradually came around. It was he who took model builder Neil Ferguson to task in the House of Lords, showing that his numbers do not add up. It was a satisfying exchange. But Tucker says at the same time, these days apparently have been disorienting for a number of intellectuals I've followed for years. Some are silent, either out of fear or confusion, and others have faltered. They've allowed panic to overcome rationality, been overly glued to the television screen, demonstrated over-reliance on some experts while lacking curiosity to look further, and otherwise downplayed the carnage that has come from lockdowns. He says some of these people Many good libertarians in normal times, from whom I've learned a ton through the years, have found themselves thoroughly confused about what government should or should not do in times of pandemic. And he admits, in truth, it's always been a confusing topic for some. And I love the example that he gives here. He says years ago, he was in a public debate with Mark Skousen. Skousen took the position that we need a strong but limited state, while Jeff Tucker argued for a model of pure freedom. Now, Skousen's main point concerned pandemics. He said the state must have the quarantine power. While Jeffrey Tucker said this power would be used unwisely and ultimately abused. He says, by the way, by vote, I lost the debate. But he said, Dr. Skousen wrote me early on in this crisis with one message. You were right and I was wrong. To which Jeff Tucker says, very kind. It's impressive for anyone to admit something like that. It's a rare thing among scholars. Too many are beset with an infallibility complex, even on subjects about which they know very little. So he says, yes, the virus has exposed weak links, even in brilliant minds. Yes, this can be disappointing. He says, I could list examples, and I'm sure you can too, but I'll refrain from personalizing the point. Suffice it to say that there have been many disappointments these days, such as people who feel the need to say, I'm against lockdowns, but... All right, you get the picture. Whether the failure to step up stems from a basic confusion over immunology, a naive trust in government, or just the way that some people do not want to risk well-earned reputations by taking unpopular positions. He says it's still an unhappy position or unhappy situation, rather, when our, when our heroes stumble and falter when we need them the most. The same could be said of organizations and venues. He says I'll cite just one case in point, National Review. Now, you might think conservatives would be skeptical of technocratic and scientific novel experiments in totalitarian disease planning. But he says, oddly, from the beginning of this crisis, the publication has been mostly quiet on the topic, with some exceptions. But he says, only yesterday did I find out the reason the editor, Rich Lowry, leaned in early to support the lockdowns and condemn those who favor, for example, following the Constitution. Once people like this take a position, they have a hard time backing off from it. And Tucker says his bias seems to have affected the editorial position of what was once a leading voice for liberty and the rule of law. Perhaps, he says, however, we expect too much from our intellectual allegiances and heroes. It's true from my point of view that if you cannot flat out say that a virus is no excuse for violating human rights, that travel restrictions and house arrest are immoral, that mandatory closures of bars and churches constitute an appalling imposition on property rights. That prohibiting contracts between consenting adults is wrong. He says, that I can't muster a high regard for your intellectual integrity. He says, I'm sorry, but a widespread and contagious virus cannot be suppressed by the police state. Failing to understand that, he says, strikes me as the height of folly. That said, there is a long tradition of intellectuals being 100% great on some issues, and flipping to contradict themselves under conditions that test their own consistency. A good example might be, for example, Aristotle himself, who was a pillar of realism and rationality, but never seemed to figure out basic economic concepts and couldn't find his way to figuring out that slavery was wrong. Or St. Thomas Aquinas, who said government should stick only to punishing theft and murder, but then offhandedly defended the burning of heretics. That Aristotle and Aquinas were brilliant on some issues and terrible on others does not mean we can't learn from them. It just means they were fallible humans. In intellectual life, the goal is not to find saints to worship or witches to burn, but to seek and discover what is true from any source. Great minds can and do go astray. He says among his own heroes, he would list F.A. Hayek. Whose insights on knowledge in society shaped how he sees the world and this crisis in, predict- in particular. In fact, his article, Smart Society Stupid People, is an example of the results. Anyone who follows Hayek understands the state has no access to an intelligence that's higher than that which is embedded in economic institutions and social processes, which in turn emanates from the dispersed knowledge and experiences of the people. It's a general principle. And yet he says Hayek himself didn't always supply his own teachings to his thinking. So he sometimes sometimes stumbled into a planning mindset himself. Tucker says the idea that governments need total power in the event of a pandemic discombobulated many otherwise impressive thinkers and writers who seem never to have considered the idea. At the same time, there's a new generation. And these times have been a marvelous teacher about the ubiquity of policy failure. It's forging new libertarian minds by the day. And those lessons will not be forgotten. So, yes, there is a crisis, but with that crisis comes opportunity. And I think the greatest opportunity is there are a lot of minds that are open today that weren't so open six months ago.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Thanks for
1: joining me in another exercise in wrong think. And don't forget, you can always check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This would be the show notes for August 17th of 2020. Lots of great links to follow. Lots of great rabbit holes to jump down if you are so inclined. Wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Capitalism. Just uh, I found an article that I had shared a couple of years ago that uh, I'm so happy to have found this because right now there's a lot of protesting going on uh, throughout the country. And I mean, look, uh, ostensibly, it's well, it's against police brutality and it's because Black Lives Matter and it's against, you know, this and against that. At the heart of it, though, there is a very strong Marxist flavor and very anti-capitalist flavor. And you'll see this sometimes in some of the statements by some of the people who are out there protesting. In fact, uh, some of the looters who were taking apart Chicago last week were making excuses for it, saying, well, you know, this is reparations. This is, you know, this is us getting what's owed us. And besides, these these companies have insurance, so it's okay. They're going to be taken care of. But it just seems like there's a, there's a very strong, there's a very strong undercurrent right now against capitalism and and as i say that word i want to make sure that we're actually on the same page here because i, I learned to my uh, dismay that there are a number of different uh, definitions when i say capitalism some people think oh yes the greedy fat cats sitting in the back room lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills or they make deals with politicians that is capitalism and from a certain viewpoint you know what they're right to a lot of people, that is what capitalism represents. It represents laws and regulations that favor those who have capital. So, you know, you don't, you don't win in any cause by ignoring the truth. And the truth is the crony capitalism, which is actually what they're describing, is a reality. Can you think of any major industry or any huge company that didn't get that way without at first climbing into bed with government at some level? But when I say capitalism, that's not the kind of capitalism I'm trying to defend. I think the problem is, you know, you've got to get government out of the equation. Then you have what's called a true free market form of capitalism. This is an article from 2016. It was from, uh, again, about uh, four years ago from Mark Perry. The title is Capitalism is About the Rest of Us, Not the Wealthy. And I love his take here because it dispels the myth that it's all about the wealthy getting wealthier while the rest of us are getting poorer. That gospel of envy that unfortunately draws in a lot of well-intentioned people who I think are trying to stand up for the little guy. But they don't understand you don't stand up for the little guy by destroying free market economics. In this case, Mark Perry says, in Milton and Rose Friedman's classic book, Free to Choose, a personal statement, they made the following point. Industrial progress, mechanical improvement, all the great wonders of the modern era have meant relatively little to the wealthy. The rich in ancient Greece would have benefited hardly at all from modern plumbing. Running servants replaced running water. Television and radio, the patricians of Rome could enjoy the leading musicians and actors in their home. They could have the leading actors as domestic retainers. Ready to wear clothing, supermarkets, all these and many other modern achievements would have added little to their lives. The great achievements of Western capitalism have redounded primarily to the benefit of the ordinary person. These achievements have made available to the masses conveniences and amenities that were previously the exclusive prerogative of the rich and powerful. Now that is a perspective that I don't think very many have considered. And Mark Perry says it's an important and powerful insight that a disproportionate share of the benefits of capitalism, free markets, innovation, new products, trade and technological advances go to the average person and not to the wealthy, as progressives like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders would have us believe. A few modern examples of this phenomenon might be the widespread availability now of a GPS on our phones or ride sharing services like Uber or Lyft. And so... He poses the question, how much do the wealthiest Americans like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump benefit from GPS and Uber? You ever thought about that? Because the answer is most likely not at all. They rarely drive themselves by car. They travel mostly by private jets and limousines. They have large staffs that handle all of their travel arrangements. Now think of the enormous benefits that GPS and Uber provide to the average person in America. And you'll have to agree with Friedman that the great achievements of capitalism primarily benefit the ordinary person. Mark Perry says, I just learned about another example of that phenomenon in an email from Boston Globe syndicated columnist Jeff Jacoby, who sent me the quote below from this book, uh, Picturing Frederick Douglass, an illustrated biography of the 19th century's most photographed American. First, about the book. This is what one reviewer wrote on the Petapixel Photography and Camera News website. Extensive research revealed that Douglas was Douglas rather was a leading pioneer in photography who sat for as many portraits as he could in order to combat blackface caricatures and to assert the humanity of African-Americans in place of slavery. Douglas believed that photographs were a powerful means of moral and social influence, allowing the poor and oppressed to find self-confidence. And then here's the quote from Douglas, who wrote in the 1860s that he viewed photographs as a potential source for self-confidence. For oppressed people, quote, the humblest servant girl may now possess a picture of herself such as the wealth of kings could not purchase 50 years ago, end quote. So like Friedman's examples of modern plumbing, TV and radio and supermarkets, modern photography likewise would have added very little to the lives of wealthy kings. They could simply command their kingdom's best artists to paint portraits of themselves and other royalty. Now, here's another great quote from Joseph Schumpeter on the same topic. The capitalist engine is first and last an engine of mass production, which unavoidably means production for the masses. It is the cheap cloth, the cheap cotton and rayon fabric, boots and motor cars, and so on, that are the typical achievements of capitalist production, and not as a rule improvements that would mean much to the rich man. Queen Elizabeth owned silk stockings, The capitalist achievement doesn't typically consist in providing more silk stocking for for queens, but in bringing them within the reach of factory girls in return for steadily decreasing amounts of effort. Interesting. To which Don Boudreau responded back in 2007, and this is a great way to summarize the main point of that post. Read that last sentence again. The capitalist achievement does not typically consist in providing more silk stocking for, for queens, but in bringing them within reach of factory girls in return for steadily decreasing amounts of effort. He says, we should teach it to our children. Instead, I fear that they are learning under capitalism, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But as Donald Boudreaux says, it just isn't so. Mark Perry says, I'm sure we'll we'll continue to hear from Hillary, Sanders, and Obama, and other progressives about how all the gains in a market economy go to the wealthy. It just ain't so. And his proof is, think about how wrong the progressive view is the next time you're using your laptop, your smartphone, your GPS, SoundHound or Spotify, or take a ride using Uber or Lyft. I think that's a point worth considering, don't you? I mean, certainly, yes. You know, look, some people have complained, well, you know, Jeff Bezos, he's gotten famously rich during the lockdowns because Amazon was the only thing that was delivering goods to people's homes. And you know what? What? he probably did get to even richer. I mean, he was a pretty wealthy guy to start with, one of the wealthiest men in the world. But back up for just a moment and ask yourself, did his efforts, his company, Amazon, did it provide benefit to the people who couldn't go to the store or who needed to to order things to their doorstep? And if the answer is yes, then I have to ask, who cares? Who cares? If he's getting richer as a result. If he's the guy who first came up with the idea or who refined the idea and invested his own money, not taxpayers money, but his own money in order to to build a system that could meet those needs. Why should we gripe about that? Why should we be moan? Well, it's not fair. He's getting rich and everybody else is getting poor. The bottom line is he created value. And that is the name of the game. And if you would like to become rich, I think most of us would love to to at least have that financial independence, right? The secret is, what are you doing to create value for the people or the, the industries or the community around you? Yeah, it requires work and it requires risk. Not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. But I've heard, and I've believed this actually for some time, even if I haven't actually lived up to it myself until most recently, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more people with the entrepreneurial mindset. See a problem, solve a problem. Find a way to create value. Find a way to create something that doesn't require you to go to someone else and say, make me your employee. It's scary. And there's certainly risk involved. But if more people did this, I think we would find ourselves uh, very difficult to uh, collar, in the sense that politicians seem to want to collar us. Well, there's some food for thought. Thanks again for joining us here on the show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.